0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 349 for November 6th, 2023. Only two months left in the year. Man, time just flies. Real quick before I get into the summary of our news topics today, uh, quick thank you to the listener who pointed out to me that uh, the link in my blog article was wrong for the TriProton article that I wrote. It's really weird. It turned out the article never actually posted. I write these articles ahead of time. You know, my my blog every two weeks, and I schedule them to post on Sunday nights, and turns out the last two never actually posted. I mean, it's I've never had to check it before because they just always worked. So thank you to the person who emailed me about that, and I'm glad I caught that, and now I'll have to keep an eye on it until I figure out what's going on. So as I said, we have a new show this week. We're going to start off with a note for Bleepy Computer about a 1Password sort of reach. It's not really something you should have to worry about, but I'll, I wanted to talk about it just so you know, you don't probably have to worry about it. I got a couple articles about 23andMe. We talked about them recently because somebody had breached data and was starting to post some of it online. Uh, well, they posted some more data. And, uh, so I want to catch you up on that. And I've got another article about 23andMe that will also help shed some light on, you know, maybe why you might not want to use these services. Apple just fixed something that was supposed to have been working for many years and apparently wasn't working, at least not working well. Uh, It was a privacy feature that they've been claiming for a long time that they actually just fixed so that it now actually works though it was supposed to work. Uh, I'll give you the details on that. There's been yet another side channel attack against processors. And this time, instead of Intel and AMD, it's Apple's new Apple Silicon processors. And Windows PCs are being targeted with a new malware. I'll tell you what you need to know about that. YouTube is really starting to crack down on ad blockers and it's turned into a real cat and mouse game. Um, It hasn't been rolled out to everybody yet, but I'm guessing it will be soon. Apple just added a really interesting feature to its iMessage or messages protocol that is specifically designed to cut off what we call the ghost protocol or the ghost listener problem that I've talked about before on this show. Though honestly, most of you listening to this probably won't need this feature, but I think it's still good to have. The Biden administration and the White House have dropped an interesting AI executive order that I think deserves a little bit of discussion. And the Pew Research Center just released a report on how Americans view data privacy. And it's a really, really long report. I admit I have not read it all myself, but I will talk about a few of the highlights. And in this tip of the week, I'm going to tell you about a kind of disturbing new trend, something that has me worried that unfortunately, right now, we really can't do a whole lot about, uh, but I still want you to be aware of it. So we've got lots of interesting stories and uh, information to cover today. Let's get right to it. All right, first up, this is about 1Password, and uh, let me read this brief article from Bleeping Computer. OnePassword, a popular password management platform used by over 100,000 businesses, suffered a security incident after hackers gained access to its Okta ID management tenant. And this is a quote from Pedro Canahari, uh, the OnePassword CTO quote, We detected suspicious activity on our Okta instance related to the support system incident. After a thorough investigation, we concluded that no OnePassword user data was accessed. On September 29th, we detected suspicious activity on our Okta instance that we used to manage our employee-facing apps. We immediately terminated the activity, investigated, and found no compromise of user data or other sensitive systems, either employee-facing or user-facing, unquote. On Friday, and this would have been like two Fridays ago, Okta disclosed that threat actors breached its support case management system using stolen credentials. As part of these support cases, Okta routinely asks customers to upload HTTP archive, or HAR files, to troubleshoot customer problems. However, these HAR files contain sensitive data, including authentication cookies and session tokens that can be used to impersonate a valid Okta customer. Okta first learned of the breach from Beyond Trust, who shared forensics data with Okta, showing that their support organization has or was compromised. However, it took Okta over two weeks to confirm the breach. 1Password states that they have since rotated all of the IT employees' credentials and modified their Okta configuration, including denying logins from non-Okta IDPs, Reducing session times for administrative users, tighter rules for the MFA administration users, and reducing the number of super administrators. Bleeping Computer contacted 1Password for further questions about the incident, but a reply was not immediately available. Okay, so this is actually uh, 1Password, and a lot of these password manager companies actually make a lot of their money from enterprise users or From big companies in other words and so this article and blue computer in general tend to be focused more on b2b or business level stuff so but nevertheless i would think that this could also have potential impacts on one password regular users like you and i like most breaches uh, there were kind of in early stages here we may learn more as time goes on but so far this looks to be not an issue for end users certainly not individual end users And I will say that we have learned a lot about how these password management companies handle their data when the LastPass breach happened earlier this year. And 1Password is quite good. They seem to have better security practices than LastPass did. Um, They've got some extra security uh, functions in place that, that LastPass didn't have for protecting data vaults and things like that. So anyway, the main reason I'm bringing this up is from what I can tell that this is not going to be a problem for end users currently. Again, time will tell some of these breaches take time to investigate. Uh, But if you're seeing, you know, hair on fire, uh, clickbaity headlines about one password breach right now, at least I wouldn't worry about it. All right, next up, I've got a couple articles here about 23andMe. And I'm going to start with this one about how 23andMe is looking to uh, basically sell access to its customers DNA. And then we're going to talk about the breach and maybe what you can do about that. So first of all, this is from Bloomberg uh, and it says GSK PLC will pay 23andMe holding company $20 million for access to the genetic testing company's vast trove of consumer DNA data, extending a five year collaboration that's allowed the drug maker to mine genetic data as it researches new medications. Under the new agreement, 23andMe will provide GSK with one year of access to anonymized DNA data from the approximately 80% of gene-testing customers who have agreed to share their information for research, 23andMe said in a statement Monday. The genetic testing company will also provide data analysis services to GSK. 23andMe is best known for its DNA testing kits that give customers ancestry and health information, but the DNA it collects is also valuable, including for scientific research with information from more than 14 million customers the only data sets that rival the size of 23 of the 23 andme library belong to ancestry.com and the chinese government the idea for drug makers is to comb the data for hints about genetic pathways that might be at the root of disease which could significantly speed up the long slow process of drug development gsk and 23andme have already taken one potential medication to clinical trials A cancer drug that works to block CD96, a protein that helps modulate the body's immune responses. It entered the testing phase in four years compared to an industry average of about seven years. Overall, the partnership between GSK and 23andMe has produced more than 50 new drug targets, according to the statement. The new agreement changes some components of the collaboration. Any discoveries GSK makes with the 23andMe data will now be solely owned by the British pharmaceutical giant, while the genetic testing company will be eligible for royalties on some projects. In the past, the two companies have pursued new drug targets jointly. GSK's new deal with 23andMe is also non-exclusive, leaving the genetic testing company free to license its database to other drug makers. All right, so there's a couple things I want to circle back on. First of all, I'm not sure how it's possible to anonymize genetic data. I mean, your genes literally are you. There's no way to hide that. I can't imagine how that could be anonymized. Even if you take all the names off of it, if I've got your, if I've got your DNA, uh, I should be able to identify you. So uh, I'd be curious to know how in the world they somehow keep that private. But another thing is if you are a user of 23andMe, do you ever recall saying yes to using your genetic data for research? Because. If 80% of their customers have agreed to this, I'm going to bet that it was somehow either automatically checked and you had to go back and uncheck it, or it was not clear what you were agreeing to. I I find it hard to believe that 80% would volunteer that information. So if you are a 23andMe customer or have ever been, or somebody you know has been, you might go check your privacy settings and look for this one that says you agree to anonymously share this data with researchers. Now, I will say here that if if there is some way to really somehow do this anonymously, this obviously has benefits for all of us, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing we can do with, you know, the quantified self. When we start gathering all this data about lots of people and run some AI magic over it and some other machine learning things, we should be able to learn a lot of very interesting and helpful things. Uh, we just have to do it the right way. And Since I'm not really sure this data can be anonymized, then what we really need is regulation uh, on how and with whom this data can be shared. and, And right now, there's just nothing, which this next article, by the way, goes into. So let me, with that segue, let me read this next article. And this is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. In early October, a bad actor claimed they were selling account details for the genetic testing service 23andMe, which included alleged data of 1 million users of Ashkenazi Jewish descent and another 100,000 users of Chinese descent. By mid-October, this expanded out to another 4 million more general accounts. The data includes display name, birth year, sex, and some details about genetic ancestor results, but no genetic data. There's nothing you can do if your data was already accessed, but it's a good time to reconsider how you're using the service to begin with. In a blog post, 23 me claims the bad actors accessed the accounts through credential stuffing, the practice of using one set of leaked usernames and passwords from a previous data breach on another website in hopes that people have reused passwords. Basically, it appears an attacker took username and password combinations from previous breaches and tried those combinations to see if they worked on 23andMe accounts. When logins worked, they scraped all the information they could, including all the shared data about relatives if both the relatives and the original account opted into the DNA relatives feature, which allows 23andMe users to automatically share data with others on the platform whom they may be relatives with. That's all we know right now. 23andMe says it will continue updating its blog post with new information as it has it. Genetic information is an important tool in testing for disease markers and researching family history. But there are no federal laws that clearly protect users of online genetic testing sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. The ability to research family history and disease risk shouldn't carry the risk that our data will be accessible in data breaches, through scraped accounts, by law enforcement, insurers, or in other ways we can't foresee. It's still unclear if the data is deliberately targeting Ashkenazi Jewish population or if it's a tasteless way to draw attention to the data sale, but the fact that the data can be used to target ethnic groups is an unsettling use. 23andMe pitches DNA relatives almost like a social network and a fun way to find a second cousin or two. There are some privacy guardrails on using this feature, like the option to hide your full name, but with a potentially full family tree otherwise available, an individual's privacy choices here may not be that protective. 23andMe is generally one of the better actors in this space. They require an individualized warrant for police access to their data, don't allow direct access to all data, unlike GEDMATCH and FTDNA, and push back on overbroad warrants. But putting the burden on its customers to use unique passwords and to opt into instead of requiring account protection features like two-factor authentication is an unfortunate look for a company that handles sensitive data. Reusing passwords is a common practice, but instead of blaming its customers, 23andMe should be doing more to make its default protection stronger. Features like requiring two-factor authentication and frequent privacy checkup reminders like those offered by most social networks these days could go a long way to help users reconsider and better understand their privacy. If your data is included in the stolen data set, there's not much you can do to get your data back. Nor is there a way to search through to see if your information is included. But you should log into your 23andMe account to make some changes to your security and privacy settings to protect against any issues in the future so EFF here gives three, three tips. One, 23andMe is currently requiring all users to change their passwords. When you create your new one, be sure to use a unique password. A password manager can help make this easier. A password manager can also usually tell you if previously used passwords of yours have been found in a breach. And in either case, you should create a unique password for different sites. Two, enable two-factor authentication on your 23andMe account by following the directions here. And of course, that's a link that you would have to click on. Uh, by going to the show notes. This makes it so in order to log into your account, you'll need to provide not only your username and password, but also a second factor. In this case, a code from a two-factor authentication app like Authy or Google Authenticator. And finally, three, change your display name in DNA relatives, that's that feature we talked about. So it's just your initials or consider disabling this feature entirely if you don't use it. Taking these steps may not protect other unforeseen privacy invasions, but it can at least better protect it from the rest of the potential issues we know exist today. If this situation makes you uneasy with your data being on the platform, or if you've already gotten out of it what you wanted, then you may want to delete your account. But before you do so, consider downloading the data for your own records. Our DNA contains our entire genetic makeup. It can reveal where our ancestors came from, who we are related to, our physical characteristics, and whether we are likely to get genetically determined diseases. This incident is an example of why this matters and how certain features that may seem useful in the moment can be weaponized in novel ways. So this article goes into actually more detail, and I encourage you to read it if you are a 23andMe customer, honestly, or even if you're any customer of any of these genetic services, because it likely will apply uh, to to you as well, though, the the exact procedures for getting your data, for example, uh, may be different. But I completely agree with this. uh, And I think that's a good point that they make that if you've already used this service, and you've already gotten out of it what you want, you know, you've already found the relatives that it knows about, for example, And you've already done the health checks and things that might give you insights into what risks you may have in the future. If you've basically gotten everything out of this service that you need, then maybe just download all the data that you've got for your future reference and then delete your account and make sure that they delete your data. And by the way, I'm still not convinced that this breach was done with credential stuffing, uh, which means there, there may be some sort of bypass mechanism or something going on here. This person got an awful lot of data for someone who just did credential stuffing. And even though, you know, some of this data was supposedly scraped from users that use this DNA relatives feature, which should, you know, expand, you know, the, the number of people quite a bit. I still find it kind of hard to believe just from a pure number standpoint that that many people had reused passwords and that they had been breached previously so that this user could use the, the those previous credentials. That that's an awful lot of data for just credential stuffing. So I, I'm not sure we've heard the last of this yet. So if I hear more about it, I will let you know. All right, moving on. This is an article about a Apple privacy feature, which I talked about on this show uh, way back when, when it first came out. And I thought it was definitely interesting. Uh, however, it turns out that Apple's implementation left something to be desired and it was not everything it was cracked up to be until now. Apple introduced a feature that would hide a user's permanent MAC address in 2020, but it's been virtually useless until iOS 17.1, thanks to a now patched vulnerability. When a device connects to a network, it performs a necessary handshake, sharing its unique MAC address. If an entity can access the Mac addresses, accessing networks at a large enough scale, they could track users as they move between networks. According to a report from Ars Technica, Apple implemented a feature that would prevent Mac address tracking, but a vulnerability has rendered it virtually useless since it debuted in iOS 14. The private Wi-Fi address feature is enabled by default and promises to assign a different Mac address to every unique SSID, which it did in practice. And SSID is the Wi-Fi name. So like you know, when you go to your phone and want to join a Wi-Fi network, that's the name that's displayed in the list of potential Wi-Fi networks. The problem is that the permanent MAC address that was supposedly being obfuscated by this feature was still being shared through port 5353 uh, over UDP. Basic MAC address sniffing was curtailed, but anyone looking could easily find the real MAC address, which presents a problem for those expecting this feature to work. The report suggests that this would have been a simple fix, and it isn't clear why Apple took three years to implement it. General users don't need to worry about this vulnerability, but anyone who needs to hide their MAC address and expected the feature to work could have had their MAC address compromised. Apple reports that the vulnerability has been patched in iOS 17.1. So this just goes to show that even with the best intentions, we can get things wrong. This was a really cool feature. I like the idea of it. It's, you know, anything that helps hide my ID and keeps me from of uh, the potential of being tracked uh, either by automated systems or by, you know, a nefarious person is great. And I touted this feature when it came out. But if you're, you know, if you do it wrong, you could still leak the information and it this wasn't egregious as it doesn't sound like like somebody would have had to to know how to do this and would have gone out of their way to do it. But nevertheless, it was a bug. And it was something that took Apple a really long time to fix for some reason. But now it is fixed. And so next up, I've got another story about uh, Apple. Uh, You know, I'm an Apple fanboy. But when they get things wrong, we got to call that out too. Though in this case, it's really something pretty esoteric. So uh, let me read this article. And then I'll give you my two cents. And this is from Ars Technica. Researchers have devised an attack that forces Apple's Safari browser to divulge passwords, Gmail message content, and other secrets by exploiting a side-channel vulnerability in the A and M series CPUs running modern iOS and macOS devices. iLeakage, as the academic researchers have named the attack, is practical and I'm not sure that's true, we'll get back to this in a minute, and requires minimal resources to carry out. Also not sure that's true. It does, however, require extensive reverse engineering of Apple hardware and significant expertise in exploiting a class of vulnerability known as a side channel, which leaks secrets based on clues left in electromagnetic emanations, data caches, and other manifestations of a targeted system. The side channel in this case is speculative execution, a performance enhancement feature found in modern CPUs that has formed the basis of a wide corpus of attacks in recent years. And it doesn't mention them by name, but Spectre and Meltdown were, were two of these. The nearly endless stream of exploit variants has left chip makers, primarily Intel and to a lesser extent AMD, scrambling to devise mitigations. The researchers have successfully leveraged eye leakage to recover YouTube viewing history, the content of a Gmail inbox when a target is logged in, and a password as it's being autofilled by a credential manager or a password manager. For the attack to work, a vulnerable computer must first visit the iLeakage website. For attacks involving YouTube, Gmail, and other specific web properties, a user should be logged into their account at the same time the attack site is open. And the attacker website needs to spend about five minutes probing the visiting device. Then, using the window.open JavaScript method, iLeakage can cause the browser to open any other site and begin siphoning certain data at anywhere from 24 to 34 bits per second. While iLeakage works against Macs only when running Safari, iPhones and iPads can be attacked when running any browser because they're all based on Apple's WebKit browser engine. An Apple representative said iLeakage advances the company's understanding and that the company is aware of the vulnerability and plans to address it in an upcoming software release. There is no CBE designation to track the vulnerability. Unique WebKit attributes are one crucial ingredient in the attack. The design of A Series and M Series Silicon, the first generation of Apple designed CPUs for iOS and macOS devices, respectively, is the other. Both chips contain defenses meant to protect against speculative execution attacks. Weaknesses in the way those protections are implemented ultimately allowed eye leakage to prevail over them. Eye leakage is a practical attack that requires only minimal physical resources to carry out. The biggest challenge, and it's considerable, is the high caliber of technical expertise required. An attacker needs to not only have years of experience exploiting speculative execution vulnerabilities in general, but also have fully reverse engineered A and M series chips to gain insights into the side channel they contain. There's no indication that this vulnerability has ever been discovered before, let alone actively exploited in the wild. That means the chances of this vulnerability being used in real world attacks anytime soon are slim, if not next to zero. It's likely that Apple's scheduled fix will be in place long before any iLeakage style attack site does become viable. Okay, so (sighs) these side channel attacks are really amazingly clever. They do different things, but there's like a row hammer attacks. There's these meltdown inspector attacks, which I've talked a little bit about the show before, but you really, really need to know what you're doing. I. That's why I really kind of take issue with this whole, you know, thing that this is a practical attack that it requires minimal physical resources. Sure. It's like, it's like, that's like saying it's really easy to blow up a city with a nuclear bomb. Okay. But you also need to know how to make the nuclear bomb and have, be able to get your hands on the materials to do so. So does that make it practical? Does that make it easy? You know, I you could debate the semantics of that, but I, I, I don't think this is something that's likely to happen. But I, what I do find interesting about this particular article is that, A, it is now targeting Apple's custom silicon chips, whereas prior uh, attacks that have been, again, almost, almost always ivory tower sort of uh, situations where they require very specific situations and a lot of expertise, uh, until now have mostly been done on Intel chips. And as this article said, to some extent, AMD as well. So this one is now against the custom Apple Silicon chips. So that to me was an interesting aspect of this article. The other part of this that I think is interesting to highlight is uh, while on Mac OS, on Mac computers, when you install other browsers, uh, those browsers are free to use whatever rendering engine They want Uh, for chrome for example or which is or brave or edge or opera they're all using the chromium engine which is made by google firefox has its own engine safari has its own engine but that engine is webkit and on ios devices which is ipad and iphone apple actually requires that every browser use its webkit engine to develop the browser so you could use firefox on your mac but the firefox web browser that you can install on your iphone is a different browser. It actually has a different engine in it. That's why Firefox on your Mac is not susceptible to this, but Safari on your Mac is, but every browser currently on an iOS device is, is subject to this attack because every browser is based on the same engine, the WebKit engine. So that is kind of a downside to a homogeneous system because these kind of systemic attacks mean that everything, every browser for iOS is, is vulnerable to this attack. Whereas on the Mac, only the Safari browser is vulnerable to this attack. So anyway, those are really the insights that I wanted to bring out with this, with this article, uh, more than the actual danger of this uh, this attack being exploited to explain some of those secondary angles. All right, next up, we have an article from TechRadar about some uh, Windows malware. Security researchers have observed hackers abusing MSIX Windows app package files to distribute malware. MSIX is a relatively new, unified packaging format which developers can utilize to create secure and high-performing applications across platforms. According to experts from Elastic Security Labs, someone's been distributing MSIX files pretending to be popular software platforms such as Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, Brave, Grammarly, and Cisco WebEx. The distribution channels haven't been confirmed, but researchers believe it's the usual mix of compromised websites, SEO poisoning, malvertising, social media, and phishing. And I'll come back to those in a minute. Being a loader, the malware itself has one job, and that is to drop one of the following final payloads. And then it gives some various remote access Trojan names that you've probably never heard of. While these may have different features, The common denominators are remote access, the ability to execute arbitrary code and data exfiltration. Users who fall for the scam and execute the file will see a prompt with an install button. Pressing the button will drop the ghost pulse malware loader onto their endpoint. And this is a quote from uh, Elastic Security Labs researcher Joe Desimoni, quote, MSIX requires access to purchased or stolen code signing certificates, making them viable to groups of above average resources, unquote. There's no information on the number of companies compromised with Ghost Pulse or who the threat actor behind the campaign is. We also don't know what their end game is, but given the type of malware being distributed in the final stage, it's safe to assume this is either a financially motivated group or an initial access broker. An IAB will typically breach a network and then sell the access it has gained to other threat actors, such as ransomware groups. Alright, so I said a return to those things, because this article mentioned Compromised websites, SEO poisoning, malvertising, social media, and phishing. So compromised websites are pretty much what it sounds like. You go to visit a website and either some portion of that page through malvertising or straight up hacking uh, has been compromised to download malicious software. And SEO poisoning, uh, SEO stands for search engine optimization. So SEO poisoning, I, I believe is what they're referring to here, is when basically you either buy ads on Google search, for example, so that when someone searches for some topic, you make sure that your website is promoted as one of the ones that people should click on, or by actually trying to uh, game the search engine optimization by actually trying to game the Google search engine algorithm to try to get your website, your malicious website, to sort higher than the actual website that most people think they want to get to, which then would lead that user to uh, the compromised website. And then malvertising we've talked about before ad space on web pages these days is pretty much rented out like billboards. Uh, there's a company that, that that takes care of filling ads on that billboard. And then there's the company that owns the billboard, which is the website. So the website says, Okay, I've got these five areas on my site of these dimensions. Uh, and I want to fill them with ads and get money. So they find it they find an ad service like Google or someone else. And they say, Okay, fill these things with ads. I don't care too much what the ads are, just send me a check. And so bad guys can just buy ad space like anybody else and try to fill those ad spaces with you know malicious code. And social media and phishing, we've we've talked about. But anyway, I thought it was interesting the article called all these things out because I wanted a chance to talk about those things. And then also initial access brokers or IABs, that's a thing. I've talked about this on on the show before, but it didn't really have an article to go with it. So I want to be able to circle back and tell you about this, that malicious hacking has become such an industry that it's actually split into specialized areas. And there are companies that do nothing more than just get you access to a network. And the more juicy that network is, you know, maybe it's a big company or it's somebody with a lot of money. They could charge more for it, but they don't actually do anything. All they do is get their foot in the door. And then once they've once they've basically broken into a place, then they turn around and say, OK, hey, I, I, I've got a have got access to this company. Who wants it? You know, maybe the highest bidder or whatever they want to do. And then this article talks about code signing. So uh, Windows and Mac have provisions built into them now that only allow certain executables to run. And they have to be usually signed by a known developer. If not, they give you all sorts of warnings that in some cases you can get past. And if not, they'll give you all sorts of warnings saying, hey, I don't recognize this developer or this looks like really untrusted software. Are you really, really, really sure you want to launch this app? So what this article is talking about is to try to get past that, or at least to try to not have those big, nasty warnings uh, to use this technique. They need to somehow get a valid certificate that the operating system would not challenge. And that in itself is not that easy to do. I mean, you could buy these things on the dark web to a certain extent. Uh, They're probably expensive, but there's a lot that goes into this. And I thought this article touched on a lot of interesting topics. So that's why I included it in this week's news show. All right, next up, another great article from 404 Media. And it's about YouTube's war on ad blockers. YouTube, of course, owned by Google. Uh, I have not personally seen this yet. I don't go to YouTube that often. So maybe I haven't seen it because I have not gone recently. Or it does sound like they're kind of rolling this out in stages, kind of testing it. But it sounds to me like this is something we all might be seeing sometime soon. The ever-escalating game of cat and mouse between YouTube, ad blockers, and users has reached a point where it can no longer be ignored, with YouTube making it impossible for some users with ad blockers installed to watch videos, and ad block developers and their users constantly updating their tactics to continue blocking ads on YouTube. Over the last few months, people using ad blockers have been getting these pop-ups from YouTube. Uh, And it has a picture of several here, but uh, I'll just kind of generally describe them. You know, it starts with something like ad blockers are not allowed on YouTube, how it's against the terms of service. In some cases, it will say we're going to stop showing you videos if you don't turn it off. Video player will be blocked after three videos, after two videos, after one video and eventually blocks you. And it's, you know, really kind of nasty looking stuff. It says, you know, you're violating terms of service. Video playback is blocked unless YouTube is allow listed uh, or the ad blocker is disabled and then of course it you know tries to get you to go to YouTube premium which is ad free if you pay money YouTube has been rolling these out to different users at different times. So there hasn't been a single day of ad block apocalypse. Instead, it's been a constantly evolving problem that is affecting millions of people at different times. This has had the effect of confusing people who have flooded Reddit, social media, and ad block review sites with differing information because certain versions of certain ad blockers continue to work for some people, but not others. AdBlock co-founder, uh, Andre Meshkov said, quote, Generally speaking, they're employing a standard ad block wall tactic. Try to detect an ad blocker, and if it is detected, show a pop-up that prompts users to disable their ad blocker. There are several versions of these pop-ups. Their their testing is clearly still in progress. However, the share of affected users is growing, so we can safely assume that eventually they're going to launch it for all YouTube users." Every major ad blocker and its user base has started to talk almost exclusively about YouTube's escalations and have been working on mitigations to stay one step ahead. The ad block saga has also become the main topic of conversation on the YouTube subreddit and a particular topic on YouTube itself. The uBlock Origin team has been updating a filter that evades detection from YouTube and posting mega threads about the situation on its subreddit every couple days, the last of which notes that, quote, YouTube changes their detection scripts twice a day, which means that even if you got a filter update earlier today, another one might be required soon. There's no way around this if you want to remain logged in, unquote. uBlock Origin has been tweaking itself multiple times a day, and the software's GitHub page shows multiple new versions over the past few days. The developers of the software also wrote lengthy instructions on how to make sure the software continues to work on YouTube, are troubleshooting for individual users in Reddit comments, and are providing detailed information about the steps YouTube has been taking to try to stop their software from working. At the moment, uBlock Origins seems to be putting the strongest fight against Google's ad block detectors, which is particularly notable considering that the software is currently being updated on GitHub by exactly two people, though more people are handling customer service, and Google is one of the largest companies in the world. Even more impressive, uBlock Origin has no funding of any sort and, as a rule, does not even accept donations from its users. Members of the uBlock Origin team told me that they do not want to speak to the press about such a sensitive topic and that all communication about the issue will be done publicly on its GitHub or on Reddit. AdGuard is another major ad blocker that updated its software to evade YouTube's detectors and said in a blog post that YouTube is waging a, quote, war against ad blockers, unquote. And this is another quote from uh, the AdGuard rep, quote, YouTube's plan to purge ad blocking users from its platform will not go down well with either users or ad blockers who will undoubtedly push back. As YouTube widens up its crackdown, ad blocker developers won't sit idly by, but will try to come up with solutions that will allow them to evade YouTube's detection, a process that might take some time, unquote. Ghostery has also written blog posts about the problem and how they are addressing it. By working to update their software, basically. Stephen Ray, a mod of the Brave browser forums, but not a Brave employee, told users in a Brave community note, quote, every web browser and ad block is encountering this message. Nobody will be immune. That said, Brave is keeping up and slightly ahead. Switching to Firefox, Vivaldi, or whatever else won't save you. Neither will using uBlock Origin, ad block, undetectable ad blocker, or any of the bunch of things out there, unquote. This brings me, I think, to the elephant in the room, which is the fact that Google has its hands on quite literally every aspect of this entire saga as a vertically integrated ad tech giant. Most ad blockers are browser extensions that are most widely used on Chrome, which is a Google product and the most popular browser in the world. They are being used to block ads sold by Google, the largest ad company in the world. And they are specifically being used to block ads on YouTube, a Google-owned website that is also one of the largest websites on Earth. Adblock software can be distributed outside of the Chrome Web Store, but the fact remains that Google can and does ban specific extensions and classes of extensions from the Chrome Web Store. There was some protracted worry about something called Manifest V3, which is a framework for how extensions function on Chrome. Major ad-blocking companies and software developers said that Manifest V3 would make it harder for their extensions to function and would restrict their capabilities, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation called it, quote, another example of the inherent conflict of interest that comes with Google controlling both the dominant web browser and one of the largest internet advertising networks, unquote. Full rollout of Manifest V3 has been uh, delayed indefinitely, Google said earlier this month. This extreme power of the ad tech and online advertising ecosystem is one of the subjects of an FTC antitrust suit against Google. Google's influence over the ad blocking industry, not just the advertising industry, is controversial among ad block developers. Google famously paid Adblock Plus to serve ads to its users, and Adblock Plus has experimented with quote-unquote acceptable ads to deliver to its users adblock Plus's parent company io just through the ad filtering dev summit a conference about ad blocking google was one of the sponsors so how does this end up it depends on how much google actually cares about this issue early indications are that it cares a lot so we've talked about this on the show many times um <laughs> And for me, again, it always boils down to, I'm okay in principle with watching ads, but I'm not okay with ads watching me. And that really, for me, is where a lot of this comes from. Uh, Now ads themselves can be extremely annoying. uh, And that's part of what Adblock Plus is trying to do there with its quote, unquote, acceptable ads. You know, it can't be, you know, super flashy and getting your attention and jumping all over the place and popping up over stuff. You know, those are the really, really annoying ads. So, you know, it's got some basic standards for what it considers an acceptable ad. And I am so personally sick and tired of ads, I definitely use an ad blocker. But there's more to ads than just looking at the ads. A lot of these ads also are laced with tracking mechanisms and fingerprinting mechanisms, so they are also tracking you. And finally, malvertising is a thing, we just talked about it. Some of these ads are not well policed and a lot of times they are actually malicious. So I honestly have no qualms recommending to people who are the least bit worried about this to use an ad blocker. And I personally like Ublock Origin, it's great. I would love to talk to those guys on this show. I've actually tried to reach out to, uh, Gore Hill several times and, uh, I don't think I've gotten any responses yet, or maybe he finally responded once and said, he doesn't do interviews. These guys are kind of reclusive, but thank goodness they're out there doing what they're doing. Cause, uh, I love you block origin. It's fantastic. So anyway, if you have not seen this yet, you may be seeing it soon. Uh, Yeah. Obviously if you don't use YouTube, you'll never see it. But this cat and mouse game, this, uh, blocker versus ad war is really heating up. All right, next up, this is from 9to5Mac, and it's about a new feature that Apple is adding for security in its iMessages. Apple's new iMessage contact key verification at first glance seems to be a rather niche security feature, likely to be of interest only to the most paranoid or highly targeted individuals. But it could turn out to be a privacy feature that protects us all from government spying. That's because it seems almost custom designed to prevent a plan developed by the UK's equivalent to the NSA, the GCHQ. iMessage uses end-to-end encryption, which means that only the intended message participants can read the messages. Or more specifically, only devices used by intended message recipients can decrypt messages. That's an important distinction because an apple server keeps note of which specific devices are allowed to decrypt messages and if that server were compromised someone could add another authorized device to those owned by participants that device would then be able to decrypt messages the same way you currently get copies on your iphone ipad and mac what contact key verification does is to enable message participants to check that this hasn't happened You'd think Apple iMessage servers being compromised seems like a rather low risk, but the company is likely less concerned about private hackers and more concerned about government spy agencies. This is the reason that WhatsApp and Signal already have similar protections of their own. All of this goes back to the quote-unquote ghost proposal made in 2019 by the UK's Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ, the the UK equivalent to the NSA. Governments around the world have been trying to compromise end-to-end encryption for a great many years, but have so far been stopped by the argument that you can't create a backdoor for use by the good guys without that weakness being detected and exploited by the bad guys. But GCHQ came up with a plan that I think qualifies for the term evil genius. Here's how the ACLU described it. And so this is a quote from the ACLU. Quote, it's relatively easy for a service provider to silently add a law enforcement participant to a group chat or call. The service provider usually controls the identity system and so really decides who's who and which devices are involved. They're usually involved in introducing parties to chat or call. In a solution like this, we're normally talking about suppressing a notification on a target's device and probably those they communicate with. In short, Apple or any other company that allows people to privately chat Would be forced to allow the government to join those chats as a silent invisible eavesdropper in other words gchq or the nsa tells apple to add an extra device which would appear to belong to you or another participant in the chat and that device would get decrypted copies of all the messages without anyone in the chat being any the wiser Apple, Google, Microsoft, and 44 other organizations and security experts signed an open letter condemning the ghost proposal, but there remained the possibility that they could be secretly forced to do it, with a classified court order, for example. Normally, there would be no way for any of us to know that it happened. But contact key verification changes that. Now we have a method to verify each individual device in the chat. It's unlikely that many people will bother to use the new feature, but now that it exists, it essentially makes the ghost proposal pointless, because anyone who's likely to be targeted by government surveillance would use it. Because contact key verification renders the ghost proposal useless, Apple is effectively telling government spy agencies not to bother trying it, and that ultimately protects all of us by maintaining the integrity of end-to-end encryption. So yeah, this is this is great. Uh, I'm really glad they did this and, that this. and as the article said, Signal has done this for a long time. And basically what it says, if there is a new authorized device added to a chat, it gives you a pop-up and says, you know, at least lets you know that this has happened. And then you could talk to your friends like, hey, wait a minute. I just see there's a new device here. Did you just get a new iPhone or did you just get a new computer? And if they say no, <laughs> then that would kind of indicate that there's some unauthorized device pretending to be an authorized device that was added to the chat. I haven't tried this yet myself. But my hope is that uh, this dovetails with the lockdown mode. uh, And I would hope that in lockdown mode that if this were to happen, that it would not allow that device to be added without first being approved. Now, I think all it really does is just give you a notification. So what you would see if you have this feature turned on, and I'd it's not, this article makes it sound like it's an optional thing to turn on. Uh, but if you have this turned on, it sounds like what you would see is a notification saying there's been a new device that you know was previously unknown to be associated with this user that has now been added to this chat. And it just gives you a warning. Uh, but again, I would kind of hope in lockdown mode that it would actually default to not adding that device and not allowing that device to be added unless it was approved by one of the other people in the chat uh, that already has a device that was known to be authorized for that user. All right, next up, uh, this is from Mashable, and this is about a new White House executive order on artificial intelligence that I think is interesting. Uh, And this article summarizes uh, what it thinks are the 10 most important things, and I'll just run through them here briefly. The White House just announced a thunderous executive order tackling AI regulation. These directives are the, quote, strongest set of actions any government in the world has ever taken, unquote, to protect how AI affects American citizens, according to White House Deputy Chief of Staff Bruce Reed. The Biden administration has been working on plans to regulate the untethered AI industry. The order builds on the Biden-Harris blueprint of an AI Bill of Rights, as well as voluntary commitments from 15 leading tech companies to work with the government for safe and responsible AI development. Instead of waiting for Congress to pass its own legislation, the White House is storming ahead with an executive order to mitigate AI risks while capitalizing on its potential. With the widespread use of generative AI like ChatGPT, the urgency to harness AI is real. What does the executive order look like? How will it affect AI companies? Here's what you need to know. And it's going to give us 10 different things here. The developers of powerful AI systems, for example, OpenAI, Google and Microsoft, must share the results of their safety tests with the federal government. In other words, while a prominent AI company is training its model, it's required to share the results of red team safety tests before they are released to the public. And we've mentioned this before. The red team is security researchers acting as bad guys, seeing if they can penetrate uh, systems. According to a senior administration official, the order focuses on future generations of AI models, not current consumer-facing tools like ChatGPT. Furthermore, companies that would be required to share safety results are those that meet the highest threshold of computing performance. And this is a quote from some officials saying, quote, the threshold is not going to catch AI systems trained by graduate students or even professors. This is really catching the most powerful systems in the world, unquote. All right, next, point two, red team testing will be held to higher standards set by the National Institutes of Standard Technology, or NIST. Homeland Security and the Department of Energy will also work together to determine whether AI systems pose certain risks risks in the realm of cybersecurity as well as our chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear infrastructure. Point three, address the safety of AI players using models for science and biology-related projects. New standards for biosynthesis screening are in the works to protect against dangerous biological materials engineered by AI. Point four, AI-generated content must be watermarked. The Department of Commerce will roll out guidance for ensuring all AI-generated content, audio, imagery, video, and text, is labeled as such. This will allow Americans to determine which content is created by a non human entity, making it easier to identify deceptive deepfakes. Point five continue building on the AI Cyber Challenge. For the uninitiated, the AI Cyber Challenge is a Biden administration initiative that seeks to establish a high level cybersecurity program that strengthens the security of AI tools, ensuring that vulnerabilities are fixed. Point six lean on Congress to pass bipartisan data privacy legislation. The executive order is a message to Congress to speed things up. Biden is calling on lawmakers to ensure that Americans' privacy is protected while prominent AI players train their models. Children's privacy will be a primary focus. Point seven, dig into companies' data policies. The White House says that it will evaluate how agencies and third-party data brokers collect and use commercially available information, meaning public data sets. Some personally identifiable information is available to the public, but that doesn't mean AI players have free reign to use this information. Point eight, tamp down on discrimination exacerbated by AI. Guidance will be rolled out to landlords, federal contractors, and more to reduce the possibility of bias. On top of that, the government will introduce best practices to address discrimination in AI algorithms. Plus, the Biden administration will address the usage of AI in sentencing regarding the criminal justice system. Point nine, attract top global talent. As of today, the AI.gov site has a portal for applicants seeking AI fellowships and job opportunities in the U.S. government. The order also seeks to update visa criteria for immigrants with AI expertise. And finally, point 10, support workers vulnerable to AI developments. The Biden administration will support workers' collective bargaining influence by developing principles and best practices to protect workers against potential harms like surveillance, job replacement, and discrimination. The order also announced plans to produce a report on AI's potential for disrupting labor markets. Okay, so I, I thought that was interesting. You know, it starts off by saying... This is a new regulation bombshell. <laughs> Again, that's that, that's that's clickbaity. Executive orders can only go so far. I've Obviously, I've heard pros and cons from this from various people. Most of the people that I respect who have kind of given a quick thumbnail review of this have said it's a good thing. I would tend to agree. I think anything that moves the ball forward is good. We've got to try something. We can't just do nothing. Uh, so we need to start doing things. And if we find that certain things are more effective than others, then we should tweak what we're doing. Uh, but we've got to start somewhere. And this, I think, is a good start. And if nothing else, it raises a lot of awareness. I'm particularly interested in things like the watermarking. I think that will be interesting. I think the AI cyber challenge, which we've talked about on the show before, has a lot of promise. Obviously, we need data privacy regulation. This is something that I say almost every week. But the Biden administration saying we need it is not going to really change matters. We really need Congress to get off their butts and get something done. But I also think it's a good idea that we really think ahead about how AI may be affecting the labor market, affecting people's jobs. And where, you know, mechanization and industrialization in the past may have affected, you know, labor workers more, AI is going to affect everybody. So anyway, take it for what you will. But I think it's a I think it's another good step. And I'm glad they're doing it. All right, last up, Pew does a lot of research stuff. And I guess back in 2019, they did a big study on privacy, and they've just refreshed it. So now they can kind of get some comparisons of how you know, people's views have changed in that intervening time. Uh, It's a really, really long article, I have not read it all myself. Uh, It does have some interesting points that it kind of starts off with. And I'm just going to kind of give you some of those highlights here. But uh, I plan to go back and read the whole thing at some point. And uh, if you're interested in privacy at all, it's certainly from a policy standpoint, I highly recommend that you go to the show notes and click on the article. So I'm, I'm not going to read this so much as just kind of talk about some of the main things. There's a lot of charts and graphs in this. Uh, one of the questions they asked are, are you concerned about how blank uses the data that they collect? Uh, and the blank is filled in with either companies or the government. And 81% of people were concerned about how corporations collecting data but only 71% were concerned about the government. I thought that was interesting. And I've I've actually done a similar survey in a lot of my classes. Uh, I teach a class on security and privacy, and I've probably taught it maybe 10 times now. And I asked this question in a pre-class survey. And I get a lot of the same responses. A lot of people seem to be much more concerned with corporations uh, and their data than governments. Though <laughs> Corporations can't throw you in jail. <laughs> the corporations can't, you know, fine you. Uh, you know, the government has a lot more power over you. And it turns out that because companies are collecting a lot of this data, governments are just going around the Fourth Amendment and buying that data directly from these companies. So to me, they're inextricably linked. But it's interesting to see people's perception of that. Another thing that the article talks about is that a lot of Amer- Americans now are concerned about the use of data. And it's uh, in particular, uh, they've done it based on party affiliation. And then while people that are self-reported Democrats have been concerned about this for a while, people who identify as Republicans have gotten much more concerned about it since the the 2019 survey. It was 63% then and 77% now. This article uh, asks some questions about AI, uh, and it says that 70% of people have little to no trust in companies to make responsible decisions about how they use uh, AI tools Eighty-one percent feel that this information is going to be used in ways that they wouldn't be comfortable with, or in ways that weren't originally intended. Uh, and yet, sixty-two percent of Americans, you know, think that AI has a lot of potential to do good things. To make the way they put it is to make life easier. A lot of people are really frustrated by these things. Sixty-one percent basically are skeptical that you know, anything they do will make any difference on guarding their privacy. 37% feel overwhelmed by trying to figure out what they need to do. I'm actually surprised it's that low. It also says that 29% of people feel that privacy is not that big of a deal. I find that hard to believe, but that may be. But only 21% of people are confident that uh, those who do have access to that personal information will do what's right with it. Of course, this is no real surprise, but 56% of people either almost or almost always click agree without reading privacy policies. And only 18% rarely or never do that. I'm surprised that it's it's even that high. I can't imagine 18% of people actually read privacy policies before clicking OK. There's just no way. It's almost impossible. They're too long. And they're almost impossible to understand. They ask some questions in here about password management. They say that 41% of Americans said they always or almost always uh, write down their passwords, which is fine, by the way, if you keep it someplace safe and you maybe don't label what they are. 34% of people save passwords in their browser, which Browsers aren't great at security. I would much rather you use a password manager, but I'd also rather use a password manager because you could have the manager generate those passwords, not just save them. So they're guaranteed to be unique and strong. And then the 21% of people, instead of trying to remember their passwords, just reset them. I've 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 heard a lot of people doing this. Like instead of trying to remember what their passwords are, they come up with some great password, then they forget it and like, eh, I'll just reset my password again. And they and that that's their password management system. And the other thing this breaks down, and I'm not going to try to describe it all here, but there's a lot of variations on this based on your age. You know, what different demographic groups do uh, in these situations varies quite a bit depending on how old you are. So the only other one I'm going to quote here really quickly is, uh, is that from 2019 till now, according to the survey, uh, password manager use has gone from 20% up to 32%. But, and this is another case where the age thing comes into play, those between the ages of 18 and 29, 49% said they use a password manager. So anyway, again, there's a lot more stats in there. I have not read them all myself. If you're curious, you can find the link in the show notes. All right, so now it's time for the tip of the week. And this week's tip, unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So this is kind of more of an informational tip of the week. And this all came about because I was talking to somebody who uh, recently got a new CPAP machine. Uh, and this is a device used to treat sleep apnea. And kind of the way these things work, if you want your insurance company to pay for this, first of all, you have to be approved for it by your doctor uh, that you actually have this problem that usually involves doing a sleep study to show that you do have sleep apnea. Uh, and it's bad enough to require you know some sort of intervention. And that Currently today, one of the most popular interventions for this is the CPAP machine. This is something you wear, a mask of some sort that you that you wear while you're sleeping that helps keep your airways open so that you don't have these, these events where you're basically not breathing. So these devices, as you might expect, aren't cheap. So if you want your insurance company to pay for it, they wanna make sure that you are using it. So in the past, what this would mean is there's a little SD card, a little memory card chip That is put in the device and so you take the device home and you use it for three months and then you bring that chip back to the doctor and say okay here's my data they look at it and if they can verify that you have been using this you know some minimum amount of time it probably varies by insurance company Uh, but you know if you can show that you are you know using this most of the time then they will pay for the device. So in the meantime, you probably rent, you like rent the device for three months or something. They, they have weird ways to get around this. But eventually, if you can prove that you are actually using this device, and I guess they figure that if you've been using it for three months, you'll keep using it, then they will agree to pay for it. Okay, that's all well and good. Uh, but what this person found out when they tried to get themselves a new updated device, their old one was uh, out of warranty or didn't work or something, they found that the new device didn't have an SD card. It automatically transmitted the data back to the manufacturer wirelessly. And you might think, oh, Wi-Fi. Okay. And some of them do, by the way, some of the more recent models do have Wi-Fi, which in- involves you configuring the device for your Wi-Fi. You have to give it the Wi-Fi name and password, right? So it can connect, which you control. But not so with this new CPAP. This new CPAP had a cellular modem built in, which means that that device, all you had to do is plug it in and it would automatically connect to the internet, to the company, uploading your data constantly without you doing anything. And in fact, that person wanted to, because because when they found this out, they they didn't like that, Uh, they couldn't return it, so they wanted to sell it. And they said, well, you can't really sell it because this device has also been pre-configured for you. Like your prescription was already pre-downloaded into it and this device is associated with you and there is no way for you. And Again, this is what the, this is what, this is hearsay. This is what they told me. This is what they told them, the the support person they were talking to. Uh, so take, you know, take that with this with a grain of salt. This may not be precisely right, but the understanding was that the user, the person who had the machine could not, remove the prescription or the identification associated with that device could not wipe it and sell it you know, to somebody else but here's the part that, that about that that bothers me and that is the fact that this device was going to connect to the internet and upload data with zero interaction by the owner the purported owner of that device and this is not the first thing that does this. Your car also does this. If you buy a modern car, all modern cars come with a built in cellular modem that is constantly updating telemetry data from your vehicle to the manufacturer. And this is true whether or not you pay for uh, like the hotspot Wi Fi service or not. Like sometimes there's a subscription or a one time fee where you can basically get access to this so that the people in your car have Wi-Fi when they're driving and that Wi-Fi is funneled through this cellular modem to the cellular network to the internet. Whether or not you pay for that feature, your car almost guaranteed, if it's any recent vehicle, already has a cellular modem built in, that's already connecting, it's already sending data. Without you doing anything, you have no control over that. And just one more example, I recently got a Tesla Powerwall, which is basically a whole home battery. I'd already had solar panels. Um, but contrary to popular belief, you actually can't really utilize those solar panels when the power is out without having a battery. Cause you're not, they don't want these solar panels pumping, you know, potentially extra electricity out into the network where linemen are trying to repair things and they might get zapped. at least that's what they told me when I asked about it. So you need a battery in order to basically get the most use out of your solar panels when the power goes out. And my Tesla power wall had a, Little antenna on it, and I and when they were installing it, I was talking to the guy, and it has a built-in cellular modem. Now it did want me to connect that battery to my Wi-Fi, and I put it on my guest Wi-Fi network so that it could talk to the internet, uh, but not necessarily be on the same network as my computer. But uh, that cellular modem is used as a backup, so even if I were to say, you know what, I don't want Tesla getting any of my information, even if it, you know, is perhaps helpful information. So I'm not going to configure the Wi-Fi or I'm going to cut off my Wi-Fi. doesn't matter. That battery actually has a built-in cellular modem and it could get on the internet anyway. So here's the point of this whole thing. Cellular modems are cheap and getting cheaper. That's very simple electronics. It doesn't cost a lot of money. And a lot of them have available to them simple, low bandwidth data plans, cellular data plans that come with it. So, all right, so that's fact one. Fact two is Internet of Things devices, IoT devices, are cheap. They've got razor-thin profit margins, and a lot of them make money off of your data. Smart TVs is a prime example of that. A lot of the TVs are as cheap now as they are because they are basically subsidized by data mining. Now, most TVs that I'm currently aware of, smart TVs, it's almost impossible to get a dumb TV today, but smart TVs today usually have a Wi-Fi connection, meaning that like in my house, I don't ever connect any of my smart TVs to to Wi-Fi. I don't need that because if I want to watch Netflix, I'll use my Apple TV to access Netflix. I don't need the smart functions of of my TV at all. It's just I want it to be dumb. But my guess is that in the future, as these cellular modem chips get cheaper and cheaper, Uh, And data plans associated with them, which are usually like 3G, maybe 4G, they don't have to be super fast. And so therefore, they could be cheap. And it's a great way for cellular networks to still get some usage uh, and make some money off of their older cellular technologies. These IoT devices that we're buying are going to come with cellular modems built in, and they're going to be pre-configured to connect to the Internet. We will not have a way to block that because they're not using our Wi-Fi. They're not using our Internet. They've already got their own data plan, they've already got their own cellular modem, they will just talk to the internet. And because we have no privacy laws in the US, it'll probably do it without necessarily requiring your consent, uh, or even your knowledge to do it. And honestly, there's not a lot you can do about that. Unless you want to try to make your home a Faraday cage, which by the way, is basically impractical. There's really no way to block these signals. And so my concern is that we're going to start seeing a lot of IoT devices that are monetizing your data and you may not even know it and you would have no control over it because you can't stop it from connecting to the internet. So it's a little bit of a depressing tip of the week, but it's more informational. I just wanted you to be aware that this is happening and keep an eye out for this as you're buying more modern IoT devices and looking really carefully to make sure that there's not some sort of a cellular connection going on that doesn't even require connecting to your Wi-Fi, meaning that you can't either elect not to connect it to your Wi Fi, nor will you have the power built into your router to uh, block it with outgoing firewall rules or, you know, things like next DNS or a pie hole. Um, It bypasses all of that. So anyway, your tip of the week is just knowledge this week. Be aware that this is almost certainly coming. So there you go, your news and your tip of the week. Alright, everybody, we're running long already. So we'll keep the, the wrap up here short. Thanks for tuning in. I've got some great shows coming up for you. Uh, next week, we'll be doing the interview with iVerify about mobile security. I just interviewed Nick Weaver about killer drones or slaughter bots, as he likes to call them. We talk about privacy and other things too, not just that. But that was a really interesting interview. And I just talked with Ben Adida about election security. So we've got some great interviews coming up. Uh, My next news show will be my best and worst gift guide for 2023 with the holiday season coming up and therefore the shopping season coming up. And I've got some fun things in store for uh, December as well. Lots of great stuff. So now would be a great time to subscribe. That way you won't miss any of this goodness. With shopping season coming up, I will obviously recommend getting some cool Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons swag if you go to the merch store. And uh, I do plan to be running a new patron promotion probably in December. So lots of great stuff coming up. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your garbage down.